you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Alrighty. I am super excited for this week's episode. Yeah, this is an interesting idea. Yes. So, dear listeners, to give you an idea of what we're doing this week before we jump straight into it, I have collected a massive folder on my computer of articles that I really want to read for D&D purposes or for world building purposes or just because I find it's interesting. And while we normally go through a specific medieval text on the podcast, I thought it would be really cool to go through some of those articles and mine them for writing ideas, for TTRPG ideas, because, you know, they're great articles that otherwise would just sit in this folder, and they've got some amazing ideas, and I don't know, I figure, why not do an episode where we just go through all of those articles read them, find the ideas on them. And if you guys like it, great. We'll do one or two of these, you know, periodically, because I've got a whole stash of articles. And, you know, we'll go back to our regularly scheduled programming if you don't like it. So please let us know what you think of this. But, I've, you know, a lot of these articles don't have a text attached to them because they're more big concepts, Mm -hmm. like, you know, eating practices or dress practices. And, you know, we don't have a text for those things specifically, but they come up when we talk about stuff. So I figured it'd be fun to just look at them individually. Yeah. And uh, Zoe has sent me a couple of them that I have also looked over so that I can participate in this process. You don't have a, a horde of scholarly articles that you keep and save for special purposes <laughs> to I read don't. in your it spare had, time? It had never <laughs> occurred to me to do such a thing. Really? No, but then again, like, I'm still actually in academia, so, like, I have to read scholarly articles anyway for other purposes. Yes, that's true. You have to read them all the time. Because a lot of this would happen when I would be searching for one thing, and for some reason, especially when you're researching magic, you have to use a lot of different keywords, and you just sort of explore. And so you're on JSTOR and you're like, that's not what I wanted to look up, but it looks cool. Let me just download and save that. So that's what I did a lot of the time. Or for like class projects that were, you know, outside of the box of what I normally study. Now that I know that's something to do, I may do the same. Because there are some really interesting articles out there. Especially if we end up doing more of these episodes, so I can bring in my own instead of just grabbing some out of Zoe's stash. <laughs> well, you had your pick of them, so hopefully they're, they're interesting to read for you. They were. Alrighty, so before we begin, we don't have a shout out this week, but I do want to just put out there that if you are interested in seeing what we have to say about these articles, or perhaps looking at some more content that we've created, different resources that we have for you guys. You guys can check out the blog. You guys can also go to our Patreon and support us if you feel so inclined. And one thing you can do if you are interested uh, in supporting the podcast but don't have the means right now is you can just go onto our website and subscribe to our email list. We have a newsletter that goes out at the beginning of every month. We are not going to spam you guys, but we are working on some cool projects. So when those come to fruition, you will hear about them not only on the podcast itself, but also through that email. So if you want to make sure that you don't miss any updates, please go ahead and subscribe to our little email list. 
and support us on Patreon, if you so desire. Yes, which may or may not also give you benefits for our secret projects, depending on our what... Our secret project. Depending on what tier you subscribe at. Yes. Ho oh, ho, we do have something in the works. Whew. Okay, so shall we dive in? So basically what we're going to do is... I'll go through an article, Mac will go through an article, I'll go through an article, we'll go back and forth, and at the end, we'll just use our little segment system, as we normally do, and mine for that D&D gold. All right. All right. So should I go first? Yes, please. All right. Because I, I have four articles, and I think you have two. That is correct. Okay. So the first one that I have pick out is a topic near and dear to my heart. It is an early modern surgeon on magic, his views on magic. I assume his views on magic are it's cheating. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that it's actually a weirdly complex topic. And it gets into some talks about gender and femininity and so on and so forth. And like, how do witches work? And if someone is being possessed, are they the victim or are they the perpetrator and how do you define that and what does medical fraud look like uh so anyway this article is called many things surpass our knowledge an early modern surgeon on magic witchcraft and demonic possession by yvonne petri so i've highlighted some sections that i will just straight up read and then also sort of summarize and go through some of the ideas here so here is our little introduction in his epitome Day, it's the entire title. The article just calls it the Epitome, so I'm just going to call it that. The French surgeon Pierre Pigre instructs his colleagues on the types of cases they may encounter and advises them on appropriate conduct not only when examining patients, but also when asked to provide medical evidence in a court of law. Zoe's comment here is, that occurred more often than you would think. Medical evidence in a court of law? That sounds reasonable. Yes, I guess that's something that we don't I never thought about in, like, medieval court cases. That's true. I guess since it comes up a lot in modern court cases, I just kind of assumed that, that there was a history to it. But come to think most, yeah, how often would you have medical evidence in a medieval court case? Exactly. Like, when did forensics actually begin? Yeah. Like, technically, you know, 18, 1900s. But there was there was some form of forensics earlier, which we'll get into a little bit. But anyway... Pigre's case studies include a man who thought a witch had caused his impotence, a group of accused witches, and a young girl purportedly possessed by the devil. His analysis of these cases and personal reflections reveal a characteristically early modern perspective. Pigre, like his many colleagues, tended toward skepticism with respect to popular beliefs, but also functioned within a medical and legal framework that accepted the reality of a magical worldview. His viewpoint reveals some of the cognitive limits of early modern medical understanding and the ways that medical practitioners functioned within those limits. So was the girl suing the devil? <laughs> no, she was on trial for medical fraud for falsely claiming to be possessed oh i see yes uh, which we'll get into but one of the things i wanted to highlight here is that even in the early modern period the early renaissance period magic was a very real phenomenon and was not considered illogical or without like outside of the bounds of what could afflict you as an individual Mm -hmm. And don't forget that a lot of like the majority of witch hunting cases occurred in the 17th century. 
Like, and that's post-Middle Ages, yes. which I feel like people forget. It's like, no, 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 witch hunts were not a medieval thing. That was post-medieval. Yep, they were, they were definitely an early modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But anyway, here we go. Many physicians from this era commented on the limits of their medical knowledge and most accepted the possibility of preternatural or supernatural intervention in human health and illness. They were keenly aware that there was often no manifest connection between the cause of the disease and its symptoms. In general, early modern physicians favored a natural explanation when one was available, but allowed for the possibility of demonic involvement, particularly when a patient's symptoms surpassed natural limits. And then... The article talks a little bit more about how the connection between prestige and basically the patriarchy, if you will, connects to discriminating against not only women who were accused as witches, but other non-traditional medical practitioners. Mm -hmm. For instance, quote, Western European physicians at the top of the medical hierarchy were university educated and some surgeons were starting to receive university training as well. Early modern doctors did not see themselves as specialists, but as members of a scholarly community who worked with a set of common philosophical assumptions. When dealing with medical problems that could impinge on other areas, such as religion, many early modern physicians relied upon the expertise of their contemporaries in the fields of theology and demonology and often cited them as authorities in their own works. So they they would quote, like, priests and theologians in their medical, I guess, journals or whatever the equivalent yes. was at the time. Exactly. And also I want to emphasize here that these individuals often saw themselves as part of the, like, um, the academic elite. So I guess nowadays, you know, at at whatever their equivalent of like cocktail parties or salons was at that point, they were sitting with academics. So I feel like nowadays we have split like academia and like the realm of science or medical practitioners, lawyers, like they're in one area yeah. and the academics are in another area and people kind of like poo poo professors and so on and so forth. But in this period, that was one and the same. It was the same group of individuals. So all the different kinds of doctor were in the same group, as opposed to, are you a yes. doctor doctor or a PhD doctor? Exactly, right. And that, again, kind of reinforces this idea that you could have a medical problem and you could go to a theologian or a priest to you know, get the spirit out of you or get the evil humor out of you. It wasn't necessarily like, ah, yes, I understand that you're having this physical malady. We will use a physical remedy. No, not all the time. And we've seen this over and over again, stemming from the old English medical tradition with the leech book that we're, that we're reading. You know, sometimes there's a prayer along with a physical remedy and so on and so forth. So that continues up through this period. I'm still working with the idea of going to a priest for a medical reason and getting any explanation other than like, it's because you have sinned in the eyes of God. And that is why you have dropsy. Ooh, see what remember when um, we had we had Zedek on and he was saying sometimes you have a Catholic priest say, oh, no, you need to go to, you know, the Buddhists mm -hmm. for a cure, or you'll have, you know, you'll go to a doctor and they'll say, oh, no, no, you need to see a priest for, for this as well. And it's, a, it's this idea that the mental and the physical are inherently intrinsically linked. Yeah, that's true. I guess I'm showing my Western bias there. <laughs> well, it's also, I think a lot of that has died off because 
the mental and the spiritual and the physical being intimately connected was largely also a Western idea. It's a it's a universal idea, and then sort of the Enlightenment killed it off. Right. I think I think personally, Enlightenment thinking killed a lot of really good manners of thinking about things. But you know, maybe this is me just being a medievalist. No, what are you talking about? The philosophical underpinnings of our society are perfect. Like, nothing's going <laughs> horribly wrong. Oh, no. No, no, no. Not at all. We live in the ultimate utopia. Mm-hmm. All hail our robot lizard overlords. Anyway, continuing on with the article. There were also elements from the Galenic tradition that paved the way for consideration of the supernatural realm. First, physicians and surgeons were faced with the limited ability of either Hippocrates or Galen to account for infection and spread of disease beyond the miasma theory. And then there's this great little sort of case study that I really enjoy. Giorlamo Racastoro began to speculate on the possibility of invisible seeds that transmitted contagion from one person to another. In the absence of compelling explanation for the spread of contagious diseases and epidemics, early modern physicians drew upon Neoplatonic concepts involving occult mechanisms that assumed the existence of supernatural realms. Given the invisible nature of the cause of disease, any unusual or inexplicable illness naturally led to the speculation about the possibility of witchcraft. Second, the Galenic understanding of the body was essentially holistic, assuming a close relationship between a patient's mental and physical state. The body was viewed as a porous entity. Illness was caused by the invasion into the body of some sort of poison which corrupted the humors and necessitated the application of bloodletting, laxatives, or purgatives. So again, we come back to this idea of mind, spirit, body Mm -hmm. all being connected And therefore, we're going to purge whatever evil is residing inside of you. But I really, really like this idea of this Italian physician who's like, hmm, okay, we can't see anything. Maybe it's not witchcraft. Maybe it's just seeds that transmit contagion. It's early germ theory. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that's pretty close. It's real close. And so, I don't know. I think it's very interesting with um, seeing how early this stuff pops up. Because people were thinking about it. It just wasn't super mainstream, especially because witchcraft was always a good scapegoat. Yes. And also, like, a genuine good cause. Like, people genuinely believed that this stuff was coming from witches. I don't want to say that all physicians were being extraordinarily skeptical and, say, and like, knew, quote-unquote, that witchcraft, like, oh, witchcraft's not a thing, but I can't, I can't cure this, so we'll just blame it on witchcraft. Like, sure, some physicians probably did that, but I feel like other physicians definitely were like, I can't cure this. This is actually definitely witchcraft, and you need to see a priest. Yeah, that does sound like a reasonable response at the time, is if I can't cure it, it's maybe not medicine, it's demons. Yeah, which I feel like is rather telling because a lot of physicians, like our modern medicine does this to an extent with physical symptoms and mental illness Mm -hmm. in terms of making that a very, very hard split. Like you can have physical symptoms from whatever, you know, mental illness you're suffering from or you know, their word for depression was like melancholy. Right. And like even Hildegard's like, hey, if you know somebody and they're melancholy, eat these things and do these things and it will help them be in better humors and in better spirits. Yeah. And melancholy is, I think, one of the humors, isn't it? 
there's the sanguine. I think it's connected to one of the humors directly. Yeah. yeah. Like something gives one of the humors gives you a melancholic temperament, I believe. Yes, yes, that's right. So you you got to have all the humors in line, like chakras. Yeah, that's a good analogy, I think. I don't right. know anything about chakras, so I will take your word for it. I know a little bit, but not too much. I think Ayurveda is very interesting in terms of like Indian medicine. Anyway, going forward, the perspective of the English physician John Cotta is typical. Quote, to admit also nothing above or beside nature, no witchcraft, no association with devils at all, is no less madness of the opposite and extreme. Which, again, I really personally like this view of sort of a balance where you're saying like, yeah, if, if you can't live with an understanding that supernatural stuff is possible, that's just as extreme as blaming everything on witchcraft. One could make that argument. Well, for, for the period specifically, especially as a physician, he's saying, like, you got to keep open to all of the possibilities because we don't, we have limited understanding as physicians, which, like, is a limited and flawed statement, but I really enjoy that he's keeping the door open. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the demons are very, very small. Very small demons. Very small demons. We could call them viruses. <laughs> Moving forward, for physicians, accepting the reality of demonic involvement was also professionally convenient. Throughout this era, physicians were striving to assert their professional authority against those whom they labeled irregular practitioners. So again, this pushes back against uh, midwives, local herbalists, so mm -hmm. on and so forth, who would historically have been kind of paragons of wisdom in their society, but get pushed out by these university-trained physicians. Right. It would, and this is definitely a gender distinction, too, because mm -hmm. the people going to university were, correct me if I'm wrong, all men at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty sure. Physicians were called upon as court witnesses to determine whether a given illness had a natural or demonic origin. The legal history of European witch trials is exceedingly complex and varies with nation and region. Doctors entered the picture by providing expert testimony regarding whether an illness could have been caused by natural means. Physicians and surgeons also participated in the search for the so-called devil's mark on the body of the accused, which, though not definite proof, could be corroborating evidence in a trial at, for, like, for someone to be a witch. I really want a, like... House MD style TV show where they set in the 1600s so they can have like people looking for the devil's mark with just with just as much seriousness as they do on medical house. Yeah. Like, there was a house episode where the plague came back. They're like, it's the bubonic plague. <laughs> they like locked everything down. I think I remember. There was also one where, where it was ergot poisoning. So, you know, the, the medieval world creeps Ooh, in a couple times. It does a little bit. It's fun. It's fun. But the devil's mark. So that's, if I recall correctly, one of the ways that you look for a devil's mark is you have to take a pin and prick someone in like all kinds of different places. And if one place doesn't feel pain, that's that's an invisible devil's mark. That's one way to do it. Yeah. There was also, like, the third teat. Like, if you had a third teat, then you could be considered a witch. And, like, what, like, sure, it could be, a like, a birth defect, quote-unquote, but, it, like, also, what if you just have a really big birthmark or something? Yeah. Then you're a witch. What, like, also, uh, I, think, I think that's a fairly common, like, 
um, what do you call? It's not uncommon for someone to have something that looks like a third nipple, yeah. basically. Yeah, or like a very large mole or whatever. Like, you know, you don't need that much to accuse somebody of being a witch back in the day. Yeah, just something which looks, is unfortunate looks out of ordinary. Mm-hmm. Which you I know, see. we all have like big freckles or something. So yeah, it's, it's not hard to find. Let's see. Furthermore, it became increasingly common to accuse women of using witchcraft to cause others to become possessed. This linkage meant that determining whether a person was truly possessed was crucial as it could determine another's fate in criminal courts. Expert As expert witnesses, the role of the physician was prominent. Demoniacs were usually considered to be afflicted and repitied as victims of evil forces. Suspicions of possession often began with the onset of physical symptoms such as convulsions, hysteric outbursts, and other forms of uncontrolled behavior. Doctors were aware that there were natural causes and natural diseases that presented similar symptoms. However, if the patient's symptoms were atypical or did not respond to normal treatment, supernatural involvement might be suspected. Clergy would then test whether the patient displayed a superhuman traits. I was going to ask how you proved someone was possessed. Yes. So first you start with the physician, and then you move on to the clergy if normal treatment, quote unquote, does not work. Mm -hmm. Which, there are so many different things that, for instance, uncontrolled behavior, hysteric outbursts, convulsions could be. Yeah, some of them might just be, I don't like the way this person acts. Mm -hmm. They're hysterical. No, they just don't like you. Yeah, I mean, you you could get into like somebody having Parkinson's to autism to whatever. To just and... like a contrary attitude. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh no, the woman is talking back. We don't like that. She must be a witch. Yes, yes. This is this is abnormal behavior. Quick, fetch the physician. Mm-hmm. And so, if you think about it, dep like physicians would act. I don't, I don't know what other term to use here, but physicians would act as gatekeepers to a point of whether or not somebody would go further in a trial as a witch. Mm -hmm. So the physician's personal outlook on magic and witchcraft were hugely important for the fate of that individual or the fate of the quote-unquote witch in the circumstance. I kind of get that. Like, that kind of makes sense. As you call in someone who's an expert in, in mm -hmm. medicine, and you say like, okay... Uh, is there a medical explanation for this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if they say no, then you move on. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. It does seem to be putting a lot of confidence in physicians of the time, though, to say, like, is there a medical explanation? And they say no, but really they mean not that I know of. Right, right. And again, it, it comes back to the idea of how people would consider eyewitness testimony to be like the infallible truth. But now we know eyewitness testimony, people remember things incorrectly. Something changes whenever you go in and you access a memory, something has changed. It Something, however minor, changes every single time you go in and access that memory. Yes, and that's because of demons. <laughs> Of course, how how could I forget? Let's see. So now we get to Pigray's actual sort of writings on how to be a good physician. And he was doing this in France for broader contextual info. Ah, so he's French. <laughs> you couldn't figure it out with all the, the words I can't pronounce. <laughs> 
Also, something that I would like to note here that is not essential to the article at all, but I just found as an interesting tidbit was rape was broadly defined to include what we would call seduction and was used as a legal category by the French state to declare elopements invalid and enforce parental authority over their children. Yeah, yeah, because the original meaning of the term rape was to steal someone away, and it doesn't mm-hmm. actually take into account whether or not that person consents or whether there's even a sexual element involved. It's You've, you've taken right. this person without their parents' consent. You've stolen her from her parents. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean, classically what, what rape was defined rape. as. And historically, that would have been a terrible thing because you're losing not only your daughter, but also whatever dowry and social connections that that marriage would have brought. So it makes sense that elopement would be considered within those bounds. But again, interesting tidbit. I just thought it was interesting. This is incidentally why the poem The Rape of the Lock does not involve any kind of sexual intercourse with a lock. It's taking a lock. Ah, that it also refers to um, what is known as the Rape of the Sabines, where yes. the lads who were in Rome upon its initial founding went and took a bunch of Sabine women. And then later when the Sabine fathers and brothers and whoever came to go, you know, deliver their women from the early Roman city, they're like, no, we actually kind of like it here. They treat us nice. So there was no... Like, in legend, there was no sexual element involved. It was just like, hey, we need women who, who, who can be wives for us. We'll invite a whole bunch of them over here. Yeah, although one assumes that eventually there's a sexual element involved, because the yes. whole point was that, like, we need to be able to have future generations. Yes, in hopefully entirely consensually. <laughs> one hopes, but you one never hopes. know with the Romans. <sighs> yeah. All right, anyway... A little bit of background on Pierre Pigray. His work was written in part to advise young surgeons on how to conduct themselves when giving evidence in court. He was following in the footsteps of his teacher and colleague, the French royal surgeon Ambrose Paré. In many ways, his advice can be seen as commendable. Pigray demonstrates a concern for what we might term professional ethics and behavior. He reminds surgeons of the weight of their responsibilities and notes their knowledge is limited. And while it is often straightforward to determine the nature of an illness, predicting outcomes is much more problematic. He also notes that the honor of women ought to be respected. He stresses the importance of a surgeon's bedside manner in all cases, but particularly when dealing with female patients. Pigray emphasizes that when examining a female patient, the surgeon must restrain his eyes, hand, voice, and touch only what needs to be touched and say what only needs to be said. This was a practical concern since early modern surgeons and midwives examined the most intimate parts of the body. So I thought that was very interesting. He also gets into female health issues and presents them very matter-of-factly, including discussions of how to determine whether a girl is a virgin, which you can't no, you cannot. determine, but there is still a belief that you can determine this and therefore determine whether somebody was raped. But he also talks about reproductive health in other more beneficial, more accurate ra- ways. But that's that's one of the Although ways. it's concerning to see that he feels the need to say, like, hey, don't get fresh or handsy with your patients. <laughs> that's true. That is very true. I mean, I like to consider that as the, like, hyper-Victorian... Like, you know how, how uh, 
a lot of Victorian writings are like, oh, she lifted her skirt and showed me her ankle. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, uh, it's, it's an ankle, my dude. I can't tell whether he's saying like, yo, don't get handsy with your patients or like, hey, be aware of your bedside manner. Right. So take that one with a grain of salt. He did mention touch. So I'm just saying. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but he did put it in there. So he does talk a little bit about mental health and mental illness and describes different cases. One in particular where he was dealing with a former soldier and sort of talking him out of his out of his melancholy because this soldier would have outbursts that could get violent. And so he approached it much more differently than other physicians did. And I thought that was interesting in that we see here an early case of what could be PTSD and or depression. Uh, I was going to say, like, I'm having trouble imagining a violent melancholy, but yeah, maybe PTSD. Because those can overlap, especially with military PTSD. Yeah. I found it interesting and incredibly insightful that he specifically talks about mental health and discretion and taking a gentle approach there. Yeah. Okay. Witchcraft and possession, the fun part. There is a French term uh, for the widespread popular belief that a witch could tie a knot in a cord and cast a spell on the newlywed couple to... Render the man, quote, incapable of the sexual act at the beginning of his marriage. Le magique d'impotence. <laughs> I'm sure what it is. I can try to say it. Le nouement de l'esculette. That's my best guess at how to say that. Uh, Pigre's mentor suggested that such a spell was possible, but Pigre himself himself rejects this possibility by pointing out that Aristotle demonstrated that magic was false and notice <laughs> noting Ah <laughs> 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 oh, yes the noted physician Aristotle I just like that that's his that's his rebuttal is like yes but Aristotle says magic is bullshit so obviously yeah. you're wrong it's like my dude Aristotle <laughs> is a long time ago Mm-hmm. Like, do you think there might be some other... Other sources? Other sources you could use. And also, that's a pretty sweeping claim for the time in which you're living. Like, oh, I'm not yeah, going to but... say he's wrong. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the stuff they are ascribing to witchcraft is just... Is medically or otherwise explicable. Mm-hmm. But still, that's that, that delivery sounds weird. Yes, but here's the thing. It gets better. Aristotle demonstrated that magic was false, and he notes that it is undignified for a Christian to believe that the words of the Bible used in a spell could prevent the execution of a marriage that had been ordained by God. Maybe God didn't ordain that marriage. Did you check the priest's credentials? (laughs) I also really like this note because it gets back to the idea that, well, it gets back to the idea of how magic works. And where does the power derive from when you're using magic? Because in a lot of the cures that we see, especially like early cures, again, like in the Leech book, a lot of them call upon a deity to do the spell. A lot of necromantic rituals, including exorcisms. People forget that exorcisms are still necromancy. I don't know why they get that. Like, it's still necromancy, people. Anyway, 
those call upon God. Some of them call upon the demons themselves. So it's a funny jump in logic for me that P. Gray's like, oh, no, no, you can't use the good Bible for evil magic. Like, it makes sense, but also, like, you can use the good Bible for a good exorcism. Like, as long as as long as the alignments are in order, you gain XP. Is that how this works? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I feel like the conclusion he should come to there is therefore they're not using the Bible. Yeah, that's also very, very true. Maybe they're using something else. Like, do you really need to use the Bible? There's other supernatural things to call upon. There's other holy texts. Like, maybe maybe they have, like, demonically inspired texts. Maybe they have their own witchy spells. Yeah, those existed. Yeah, like, who says that they're quoting the Bible when they do their magic? Actually, there are some fascinating books on necromancy that we're going to have to go over. Yes, we definitely should, because you've mentioned this before. I've got one of them. It's really fun. And plus, there's like the Book of Honorius. Anyway, Pigray attempts to explain why people believe such spells are real using his understanding of the effects of the passions on a person's health. He points out that, and I love this. He points out that even for men of sound judgment, any slight passion, the disdainful refusal of the woman, or the fear of failure could, as he put it, reroute one from this pleasure. A spell appears to work, he argues, because if a man is fearful and melancholic, the mere suggestion of witchcraft is enough to render him impotent. Interesting. So he's saying it's probably not witchcraft, you just have performance anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, that is what it boils down to, isn't it? <laughs> Which is a real problem. Yeah. Historically and in the modern day, it's it's a problem for people of both, you know, sexes and any gender. Like, sometimes you're not in the mood. Sometimes you want to be in the mood but can't be. And you're like, what's going on? And so some of these people reach for witchcraft. I'm not going to say use that excuse next time it comes up for you, but maybe you should consider it. Sorry, honey. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. <laughs> I like that. That's that's a that's a good one. But yeah, I I really like that. In this case, we're taking something, or rather, Pigray is taking something that could appear as very very scary and a problem that can't be solved, and he's saying like, no no no, like chill. You're catastrophizing. It's not that. You know, you probably just can't get it up right now. You're a newlywed, you know, you're nervous. I get it. You know, take some time to relax. So I thought that was fascinating yeah. because I've never heard of that problem being discussed out, like actually outside of the realm of magic because I guess I've always studied it in that context. Like there are tons of curses and spells, particularly in Viking sagas that are like, I'm going to curse this guy and make his dick so big that he can't get pleasure. I've from been thinking any of exactly woman. that one the entire time you've been talking yeah. about this. Is is it's Gunhild, right, who puts that curse mm -hmm. on, on a guy. She gets mad cuz he goes for somebody else and she's like, "Cool, I'm going to curse him so that he's so big, he's so girthy that he will gain no pleasure from anybody except me." There's a lot of, for some reason, there's a lot of, like, dick magic in medieval writing. And, of course, we are talking about the famous Gunhild, Witch Queen of Norway. Ooh. Her name a means legend. a little extra zazz. 
It does. But anyway, uh, Kate Gray concludes this discussion by arguing that it is certain that the principal credit of such enchantments and extraordinary effects comes from the power of the imagination, which troubles the bodily force and acts principally against the common people who have little or no resistance to it. So he's, he's basically saying, like, you're, you're talking yourself out of it because you think it's witchcraft and, like, you're letting all these horrible thoughts get to you. It's affecting you. And therefore, your health is affected. Your physical health is affected, which is very true. I just find it incredibly amusing that he's putting it in these terms. Yeah, it's, it's psychosomatic, basically. Yes. So now we get to the case where he's called in to work with this young woman who is supposedly possessed. But he doesn't believe in possession, does he? He believes in possession, but not in all cases. Wait, does he believe in witchcraft sometimes, but not for that particular purpose? Yes. Because witchcraft for him is like for the really serious stuff. Ah, uh, okay. And not if you're talking yourself out of getting it on. For him, impotence is a little problem. That's a physical problem. It's not a witchcraft problem. Fair. Okay. Which means it's more solvable. So like, it's, a, it's an overall positive to get that response from him. In my estimation, like, good for you, you're not cursed with a small dick. It's just, you're you're thinking about it the wrong way. I wonder if his tune would have changed if he had the same problem. If he would have gone like, oh no, <laughs> it's witches this time. Oh no! <laughs> I feel like there's so much you could do with that in a D&D setting. Oh boy. It would be a weird session. That would be a really weird session. I'm I'm just overall amused by the entire... The entire thing. It could just be an NPC who's, like, on a quest. The quest for ye old Viagra. Yes. Essentially. Anyway. Ye little azure pillin. <laughs> so, this woman, I'm trying to find the start of it. Yeah, the other doctors recommended purging to remove melancholic humors, but he didn't want to go that way, because he would rather just talk to her. So That's a step forward. Mm-hmm. Pigray does not go so far as to suggest that witchcraft is not real. On the contrary, the fact that he and his colleagues used pricking as a medical technique suggests they did consider the devil's mark to be a sign of the pact between a devil and witch. However, he did not find that a preferable way to judge whether or not someone was either possessed or a witch. Also, I'm sure that's a really, like tedious and difficult operation to go like okay we're going to stab this person with a little pin in like every Ugh. place we can think of they're probably not going to cooperate like this is no. going to end in tears all around yes like as someone who doesn't like you know needles regardless and as a child i threw a fit when getting flu shots so that just sounds like a very bad time but okay, here we go. Here is the case. This is in 1587. There's a 27-year-old woman who is said to be possessed by the devil under the care of the Capuchins in Paris. So he went with two other physicians. The uh, Holy Order or the Monkey? The, I would presume the Holy Order, as I don't think that King Henry had a bunch of monkeys, but you never know with the French kings. Yeah, you can't trust them. You really can't. Pigray took the girl's mother aside and asked about the girl's life, what malady she had, and where this unhappiness came from, and several other specific things about the woman's illness. The mother then told him her daughter suffered from des fleurs blanches, which Pigray then explains to the reader that this is what surgeons call une chaude pisse, which 
we then get into these two different terms. So okay, the I got first fleur blanche. What is mm-hmm. should piece? So the first is an ailment characterized by unusual discharge from the vagina. The second is used in modern terms as a popular slang term for gonorrhea. Oh, okay. So they could be the same thing, could be different things. There's probably something off down there. Gotcha. Okay. White flower. I see it. I see it. Mm -hmm. Don't know Uh, what the other one means, but I'll take your word for it that it means gonorrhea. So... The possibility that the girl had contracted a sexually transmitted disease is somewhat strengthened by the subsequent details that Picare offers. After his examination of the girl and conversation with her mother, the clergy became involved and began an exorcism. Picare states that he agreed to this in order to report faithfully on the situation to the king. Apparently, during the exorcism, she cried out and made strange motions when the prior read the gospel. Uh, Maybe he was just reading it wrong. And she was like, no, no, that's not how you say that word. Wait just a sec. Okay, continue. So he calls in another individual because he doesn't want to report this to the king alone because he's afraid of like being called out for being unbelievable. So he wants to have a witness in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he does. He then concludes that it could be a case of sexual abuse. and Wait, so maybe she was reacting to the priest? From the physical ailment she had, it could have been a case of sexual abuse, is what he uh, concludes. Okay. In regards to the exorcism itself, P. Gray states that he discovered from a young boy that the same girl had been punished in a man two years previously as a false demoniac. He reported this to the king, who immediately sent for the bishop. When the girl and her mother saw the bishop, they were shocked. The bishop reported that she had come to a mom with her family, saying she was possessed. The bishop did an exorcism, but began to suspect she might be an imposter and tested the validity of her possession. He invited her to his house, had one of his men dress as a priest, and then read her the Latin from the letters of Cicero. Upon hearing the Latin, the girl knelt down to be exorcised, as she had done two days earlier upon hearing the gospel. The bishop noted, the demon could not distinguish Cicero from the gospel. The bishop then interrogated the girl's brother, who admitted that her father had instructed her at night in basic Latin. What is she getting out of pretending to be possessed? Internet clout. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing that there was probably either charity that her family could reap from this or alms or like there was probably some sort of social status to be gained from Uh, this as like, oh, our poor daughter. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And like. If your daughter is possessed by a demon, then you're probably going to get charity from the church and from neighbors who are like, their lives must be so miserable. They have a demon in their midst. I mean, if you're going to fake something religious, you should fake a miracle so people will pay you to have you do it again. Yeah, but then you have the burden of, of making things better. I mean, all you have to do is say that, oh, no, it didn't work because you didn't believe hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> ah, yes. There are people making millions doing that. I was like, faith healing is still a thing, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't actually work. No offense (sighs) to anyone who believes in it, but I don't. And That's valid. Like, all it takes is enough coincidences for you to be able to say, like, it works sometimes, and if it doesn't work, Mm -hmm. you just don't believe hard enough, and then you've got a whole racket going. Like, that seems much more reasonable than pretending to be possessed. 
I can't stand the don't believe hard enough idea. Like, that's so... Like, not only is it just wrong, it also is just... It's cruel. It's cruel to tell somebody. But anyway. Well, yeah, the whole racket is bad. That's that's why it's frowned upon. Exactly, yes. Uh, but yeah, so she... In the first case, when she was in Amon, she was whipped. And in this case, she was imprisoned. We don't know what happened to her after this. Presumably she didn't try again, because if she did, we probably would have records of, of it. Of it again. again. Yeah. Yeah. Or, well, not necessarily. But, I mean, I would say that the answer to what happened next is she gave up on this scheme since it clearly wasn't working. I would hope so for everyone involved. But that is essentially what this article goes through. And then it, it concludes by saying uh, his description of cases, including witchcraft and demonic possession, highlights something of the intellectual boundaries of early modern thought. He's skeptical of the belief that a witch's curse can cause impotence, yet seems to have no objection to the practice of pricking an accused witch to look for the devil's mark. He understands that one's imagination can cause delusional and unpredictable behavior and thinks to question a girl's mother about her illness, but does not link whatever she confessed to him, her ailment or her despondent behavior with her performance as a demoniac. Would it have been possible for him to go any further in his analysis of the case? He comes so close that it is tempting to think that it might have been possible. So there we go. That is a little bit about P. Gray and his views as an early surgeon on magic. All right. All right. Do you, I guess we do the segments at the end, you think? Yeah, let's do the segments in at whole. the whole. All right. So the first article I've got here is... From Saga to Romance, The Use of Monsters in Old Norse Literature by Catherine Hume. And it's long, so I'm going to do a lot of summary and not a lot of reading directly, but I'll at least give you the, the abstract in the first paragraph. Abstracts are so useful. Yes. They're a pain to write, but they're so useful. Actually, let me just give you the abstract, because it's nice and short. Yes. Islendinga sugur are easy to differentiate from Fornalder, Lugi, and Riddara sugur. Uh, that's the sagas of Icelanders, the historical sagas, are easy to differentiate from the sagas of old times, Fornaldr saga. False sagas or fictional sagas are Lugisugur, lying sagas. That's a great word. Yes. Or uh, chivalric sagas, Riddarasagur. It just means uh, sagas about knights. That, that would be like our Tiadel saga, which was yes. just a retelling of Beast Clubber. Yes, a lot of the... I always have trouble with this one because it's a lot of... L's. It's a lot of L sounds. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's no L's. It's all R's and D's, but it's all tapping the tongue at the front of the teeth. Oh, yeah. Riddara Sogur are, yeah, often borrowed or inspired by continental romances. Mm -hmm. So there's one about Yvain. And there are a couple original ones that one of these days I'm going to bring Mirman Saga in to do. But that might be a while because either going to have to summarize or translate because there's not a public domain version of it. Ah, uh, so I have no segue for this except for the, the fact that anything that the Icelanders translate that was a saga is totally different than the original. And this leads me to the glorious little book that is the Icelandic translation, quote unquote, of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is less of a translation and more of an entire rewriting. And I'm trying to get my hands on a copy because I really want one. <laughs> it's supposed to be amazing. 
I have. But heard anyway, that. yeah, I'm I'm gonna try and find it. In fact, I'm gonna make a note to do that tonight. But anyway, keep going. So sagas of Icelanders are easy to differentiate from these other ty- types of sagas. Their settings are local and detailed. They focus on society rather than on stereotyped freelance heroes. And above all, they are relatively realistic, while the others indulge lavishly in monsters and magic accessories. And most of this is about why. Trying to summarize as much as possible. Oh, that's fine. Take your time. That is That is the hard part with articles, is that somebody's put all this work into the article itself and it usually contains so much good information but it's all so contextual you have to be really careful about where you slice and parse it yeah and i can't read it out loud directly because a there's probably copyright issues and b it is 25 pages long yes all right but she points out there are exceptions to this, but a lot of them are the post-classical sagas, and in fact notes that there is a distinct change in Icelandic tastes away from strictly realistic historical sagas towards less realistic romances, which is why the sagas of Icelanders are all, like, written relatively close to one another, and then at some point that tradition kind of declined. Faded. Yeah, faded. But they continued to be interested in romances. All right, so Dr. Hume wants to distinguish from fictional supernatural phenomenon and real supernatural phenomena. Ooh. Meaning, basically, stuff like Second Sight and witches are not fictional supernatural phenomena because these are things that the writers of the sagas may have fully believed were real and encountered in their daily lives. Like, you probably know someone who claims to have second sight. You've probably heard that, like, oh, that old woman over there is a witch. Mm-hmm. Like, so these aren't fake. Right. It's like, it's the difference between the sort of magic we've previously talked about, or like the magic that you'll find in the leech book versus the magic that you see in Pearl of Spouse, for instance. Yeah. One's completely over the top and ridiculous, and the other's like, this could actually be a thing. Yeah. So I'm going to quote a a line here. Uh, Saga use of easily rationalized magic, true dreams, rune spells, weather magic, and the like, and of uncanny folk cannot safely be distinguished from realism. But we can presume that neither the authors nor the audience had seen dragons, giants, or draugr. That's an interesting argument. Yeah. It's like all of those stuff you could say like, of course you can have prophetic dreams. My cousin... Mm -hmm. Thorstein had a prophetic dream just last month. He dreamed that we were eating cod and then it totally came true. (laughs) But no one's seen a dragon. Right. I wonder, for instance, how, because draugr is such a amorphous word for English speakers, like we don't really know how to define that. I wonder if there are some circumstances in which people would have absolutely claimed to have seen Draugr or a troll or whatever. Like, I'm sure somebody's been like, a wolf, that's definitely a shapeshifter. Yeah, like, I think that there is a point where you probably know someone who's claimed to have seen this or like someone's great uncle's cousin once removed had a random encounter with a troll, like something like that. It's sort of like, oh, those were ages past. Like, for some reason, we all love sticking that stuff into ages past. Yeah. It's like, oh, my grandfather had a run-in with a troll, but, you know, they've died out since then. Yeah, and again, no one's going to be saying, like, 
yes, I've seen a dragon. Right. Or if they are, they're saying it to someone else and they know they're lying about it. Right, exactly. So there's like a steps removed. Yes. All right, so Dr. Hume has a note on how monsters were used, which is the kind of general gist of this article. She claims that the hero's confrontation with a monster follows one of four patterns. One, the monster exists to test the protagonist and to affirm his status as professional hero. Two, the monster preys upon society, thus letting the hero put his strength into the service of others. Three, the supernatural being serves as a comic or ironic device for reducing exaggerated heroes to more human stature. Four, the monster forms part of a deliberate comment on the nature of heroism. All very good points. Yeah. So there's, like, monsters that the hero fights because he's a hero, and heroes fight monsters like you've got to have them. Right. There's monsters like Grendel, where they're a direct threat to society, and someone has to, and you see the hero stepping up. Mm-hmm. Kind of an almost a metaphor, if you will. Yeah. And there are, like, comical or ironic devices, usually with giants, I think, where... Yeah, or trolls. I forget which saga, but there is a saga where giants insist on referring to, like, the fully grown human as a bearded baby because he's so small. Oh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that one. Or the monster is, like, a literary device commenting on the nature of heroism. Right. I assume that last one is rarer. The motivation for monster fights as proving the hero is a hero can be kind of like an initiation ritual. Like a reflection of the movement from child to adult, the movement from adult to, like, hero. Mm -hmm. You have to fight a monster. Or, very often, they just want something the monster has. Like the dragon's hoard, or mm -hmm. the sword that Grettir steals from Car the Old. Yes. It's the hero's journey. Yeah. In its, it's most basic journey. form. It's noted that there are fewer examples of... The monster being a direct threat to society in the vein of a Beowulf, or a mm -hmm. Grendel, rather. Because, for whatever reason, the authors who included monster fights were not as likely to include social consequences. It was just like, he has slain a monster, and therefore he is a better person, but less likely to place it within the... Context of, like, social Thank commentary, norms, behavior, etc. Yes, that's exactly what I was reaching for. That makes sense. I feel like that's a lot of... I think I feel like that mirrors our popular media today in terms of like, I want to tell a fun story. There needs to be a monster for the hero to overcome and that makes the hero better. And then you sort of look at it and you're like, that could have been really interesting, but, but then there's nothing more to read into it. Like, what are you going to do with, I don't know, Transformers? I don't know what other examples there are. Give me another movie like that. Age of Ultron? Age of Ultron tried. Man, I don't see movies. That's fair. <laughs> Neither do I anymore. <laughs> but basically, one of the things that the author is kind of bemoaning in this article is the lack of there being monster fights that have greater social consequences okay. and greater position within the social fabric. There's some commentary on the use of giants to cut heroes down to size. Examples like... Arrow Odd Saga, which we should do at some point. And of course, as she says, on a different plane, the same cutting down operation is performed on Thor by Utgard the Loki mm -hmm. in the account of Thor's visit and his treatment as a puny weakling. Yes. Which 
is is one of the myths that I think anyone who's read Norse myths would recognize. But it's he, he shows up to a hall and is given a lot of hall games. Like, can you lift this cat? And he's like, of course I can lift a cat. I am Thor. And he tries to lift the cat and he can't. And, and he can't like, lift the yeah. cat. Ah, we tricked you. The cat is Jormungandr in disguise. Or a more typical hall game, like, can you drain this horn in one go? He's like, yes, of course I can. I am Thor. And he can't. And they're like, ah, we tricked you. The horn is connected to the sea. And so, obviously, you cannot drain the whole sea in one go. That's my very um, dignified retelling of Norse mythology. I feel like that's exactly as Snorri would have wanted. Thank you. (laughs) The example given of... Monsters being used to question the role of a hero is the ghosts in Erbigya Saga, who are driven away by Snorri Gothi when he mm. threatens to sue them. That's right. The author is arguing that that's put at odds with the traditional method of fighting the monster, is using these more cunning methods to outwit the monster. And that was, which point was that? Not to cut the hero down to size, but... No, that's the fourth one to, um, how did she phrase it? A deliberate comment on the nature of heroism. Mm, Which, I don't know if I've ranted about this before, but it goes back to the idea, the sort of classical idea, but also I found this is far more universal than just the classical idea of a hero, that the hero needs to be both a warrior, poet, and magician. Interesting. That's that's my argument for what heroes sort of need to be. And I feel like Odysseus kind of fits that. I feel like Eich in Eich Saga fits that because he does magic. He's got to be a poet in terms of not only does he pen poetry, but he uses his words extraordinarily well. And he's also got to be a warrior. So this kind of goes to show that in the sense that the hero here has to outwit the ghosts by suing them by legal prowess by words rather than through means of force by the sword yes yeah i can see that yeah that's my take i i mean i would love to write a a extended paper on it but i have not yet you should do it (laughs) i should i say knowing that you will do it and i will not (laughs) i mean i can like edit it for you Ooh, that'd even be a fun think piece though yeah doesn't need to be Strictly academic. Now, the next section of this paper is what makes monsters artistically effective. And like I said, one of the author's complaints here is that often monsters are just kind of thrown in as like something for the hero to fight. And there is a habit of kind of conflating, ah, monsters means not good literature. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the very familiar, like, pushing of fantastic elements to the side. Mm-hmm. Which, may I say, Tolkien heavily pushed back on. Yes. Turning fantasy from a children's genre to something that people of any age could read. Yes, he's actually quoted on the very next page. Oh, huzzah, look at that. The author says, obviously, that's it's not true that monsters automatically equal not good literature. Obviously, we have Glaum in Greta Saga. We have... Grendel in Beowulf, we have the Green Knight and Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. We have everything in the Lays of Marie de France. Like, we have all these examples of good literature being done with supernatural elements. Not to mention the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are, like, classical, like, held up as pieces of fantastic literature. Yes, true. Although that might also count as 
non-fictional supernatural stuff since it's mostly about gods intervening in mortal lives and that would be something they're like of course that happened that's fair but that doesn't mean that it's not good literature that is true anyway go on go on right so the point and this is something i underlined or put a little star next to the opponent who pops up in a hero's path as if pulled from a hat cannot intrigue us or win our attention. He can only fulfill his technical function of confirming the hero's status, a function equally well fulfilled by a berserk, a bear, a powerful dwarf, a dragon or draugr, an outlaw, or even just another human champion. Ooh. So DMs, take note. The yeah. shape of your monster matters, not only for like what it is, but also what it represents to your players. And that's why having monsters and enemies and big bad evil guys who are have personal connections to your player group is so key. Like no matter what you're doing, you have to create some kind of personal connection to whatever your heroes, your players are trying to overcome. Otherwise, it's just a dungeon crawl. It's just a kill fest. And yeah. frankly, I think those are way more boring, but, you know, to each their own. The reason I started it was because it was it's basically saying, like, boo, random encounters. Yes. Or at least if you're going to have random encounters, you have to make them mean something later. Or I might even say, if you're going to have random encounters, and this is how I deal with random encounters in my games, is I have a series of random encounters set up for, you know, travel, etc. But each one of those random encounters has a connection to a player's backstory in some way. More than one player, if I can manage it. And that way, no matter what the encounter is, one, it's either a quest hook that is going to matter in the next town they go into, and so therefore there's an immediate payoff, or it's connected to the backstory. So that means that immediately at least one player is going to be like, oh man, we gotta like we gotta engage with this. And it's not like, man, I just wanted to get through this watch so I can go to the next town. Right. Yeah, like you need something so that traveling through the wilderness has a consequence. Like it has to be dangerous to travel through the wilderness because otherwise it's not really much of a wilderness. Right. But you should make it mean something rather than like, ah, manticore. Yes, precisely. And then we've got this quotation from J.R.R. Tolkien who says, A man might well exchange for one good dragon what he would not sell for a wilderness of them. Basically saying, like, if you can do dragons properly... That is better than, that is far better than just putting in dragons for the dra for the sake of dragons. A note to all DMs and all writers. Yes. Uh, Tolkien incidentally claims that in, still being quoted here, in Northern literature, there are only two dragons that are significant. Fafnir, the dragon of the Volsungs, and Beowulf's Bane, i.e. the dragon that kills Beowulf. Like, there are lots of other dragons crawling around, but those are the ones that he sees as the only significant ones. Those are the big ones. Yeah. Definitely. Because they represent something about the culture that they're interacting with. Yes. Because Fafnir is still technically a non-human human being. Yes. Fafnir is what Dr. Hughes would call a non-human human being because he starts as human and becomes a dragon. Yes. Because he sat on a bunch of gold. Yes. That's the consequence. You become, a, you can become a dragon. What the author talks about regarding Fafnir is the kind of mysterious tone given to the scene. There's dragon lore, like that you should not give your name to a dragon. There's Fafnir revealing like that he has great knowledge, that he's in some way connected to the world of the gods, that he knows who Sigurd is. Like there's something that gives this more, more heft. Mm-hmm. 
Draugr, says the author, actually work out artistically much better in the sagas than other monsters because they usually have a backstory built in because they were someone before they died. Yes. That's another really good tip for DMs. Pull that straight out of the sagas. Right there. She mentions, of course, Glaumer and also the saga of Eil and Ausmund, which is one of the supernatural sagas. For those of you who haven't read Greta's saga, Glaumer, or Glaum, depending on how you anglicize it, is a Draugr, a walker after death. Also massive. Yeah, also massive, because Draugr can do all kinds of things. But his backstory is, like, there was a haunting at this place, and so they called in this, like, weird Swedish shepherd who was reputed to be able to deal with this sort of thing. It's always a Swede for some reason. For some reason. Well, because they're foreign. Yes. And there's like extra mojo for, around. for people who are foreign. Yes. Because yes. they're they're different from the people around them. Extra mana, perhaps, one might say, if we were going to <laughs> throw in yet another cross-cultural metaphor. There we go. Why not? But anyway, Glaumer takes the sheep herding job and he's like, I, I, I can deal with ghosts. Of course I can deal with ghosts. And he does deal with the ghost, but he also gets killed in the process. And so following that, Glaumer as a Draugr is haunting the farm. And then Grettir has to be called in to deal with Glaumer. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole like buildup and story behind just this, this threat. And the way that you dispatch a Draugr is you cut off its head and stick its head underneath its Yes. And that way it doesn't come back. Presumably out of shame. I suppose, for any number of reasons. But I like that tidbit. I feel like that needs to be utilized more as a step. I don't know why the Witcher didn't do it, because that seems like a really fun like final piece once you defeat an enemy. Yes, put that in your games, guys. <laughs> Watch me, I will. <laughs> Press A to stuff head under... <laughs> yes, please. That'd be the best mechanic in the game. Oh, Anyway, yes. So the, the Draugr are better because they have their own built-in backstories. Yes. And of course, also Glaumer himself is more interesting because he's able to, like Fafnir, have this conversation with his killer that hints at greater and more mysterious things. It hints at a wider supernatural world and that moves the plot along in important ways because Glaumer curses Grettir, causing him to be afraid of the dark, which drives the plot of the rest of the saga. That's also a really good curse for for your players because it seems really innocuous. But how many times would that become really frustrating or really challenging for your players in a game? Being afraid of the dark? Yeah, that would come yeah. up frequently, I a would think. A lot. Especially if you do it to a player who has dark vision. <laughs> because, like, usually you get like, ah, I don't need a torch, I have dark vision. Well, now you need a torch because you're afraid of the dark. <laughs> that would be amazing. Get this beautiful looking Legolas style elf who's just clutching a torch when everybody else around him is like, dude, chill out. No. (laughs) Relating to Grettir and Glaumer, the author then goes on to make another, I think, useful statement for us. Any hero whose specialty is deeds of strength, we're talking about Grettir here, whose whole deal is that, like, he's incredibly strong. Yes. 
Any hero whose specialty is deeds of strength rather than cunning or sanctity or other social virtue has the potential for doing damage to society rather than serving it. I feel like that's a social commentary in many, many of the sagas. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Putting that awareness into a typical heroic story is, I think, very interesting because you have this person who is like the strongest and the best and the, the fightiest of all the monster fighters. But he's also an outlaw because Grettir's kind of a Yeah, he is. For me, that comes down to an idea that I think Professor Powell stuck in my head or I read somewhere in one of her classes. I think it was probably her dragon's class that in order to defeat the monster, one must become a monster and learn how to manage that. And so this in particular is a very, very good explanation of that. And again, why the hero must be a warrior, poet, and magician. You have to be able to deal with the supernatural. You have to be able to be a decent person and communicate, but also know when to use a sword. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think you could all, that's also a commentary that can be made on Beowulf and Grendel, is that Beowulf Mm -hmm. is to a degree monstrous, and he needs to be in order to fight Grendel. Oh, yeah. And Kukulin, for that matter, his whole warp spasm thing. Kukulin isn't just a little monstrous. Kukulin is straight (laughs) up a monster. We just happen to be following him as the protagonist. Yeah, that's fair. Like, he's basically like some sort of were-creature, except... He is. Like, he's the Hulk. He's the Hulk. He's the Hulk. He's, He's a teenage Hulk. Yeah. Who can't grow a beard. Well, he can. He just needs to fashion a fake one. <laughs> like, look, beard. It just happens to look very much like grass. <laughs> Don't mind the fact that it's green. It's part of my uh, extra special heroing is I get a green beard. A green beard. The author continues on this topic of how monsters need to have roots in order to function. Literarily. Like, there needs to be something about them other than just a random encounter. <laughs> But most saga monsters lack roots. You just like, ah, and there were trolls there. Like, what about these trolls? They were trolls. He fought the trolls. He killed the trolls. Why did he kill the trolls? Because they were trolls. Like, that, there's nothing there. I feel like we get this a lot in Perlis Bros, and it would almost seriously detract from the story, except for the fact that we come back to those places later. Yes. If we didn't come back to those places later, it'd be like, why? Why are we here? Why? What is going on? Like, you just told me about a tower with a heron on top of it, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Yeah, honestly, I think you could make a similar criticism to Perlis Vows, but just swap out monster for non-Christian. <laughs> yeah, you really could. Oh, that's, a, that's an astounding reading. Because he does just kind of wander around fighting people just because they're non-Christian. And yeah. We're not given a whole lot of roots for who these people are other than they're heathens. They're non-Christians. Therefore, we're going to kill them all. Yeah. Uh, The author goes on to say that stuff like allegory and psychological symbolism is not hugely present in the monsters in the sagas. Like, you can read it into there, but it's not, like, written in as in the example she gives is the fairy queen. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things, however, that is worth talking about, that is like a symbol that she recognizes, is the presentation of, as you mentioned earlier, monsters as a metaphor for threats to society. Mm-hmm. And again, Draugr are, she says, expe- especially good for this. Quote, they embody the nightmarish shadow side of society, the ruthless elements that are normally repressed. Ooh, that's good. She talks about some specific Draugr who are set up as the shadows of the hero of the saga. Glaumer mm. is one of them. 
Because you can see that he and Grettir have a lot in common, but they're opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. Glaumer is like the shadow of what Grettir could become. Another literary term for this is foil. Yes. And in Erowad Saga, which again, we've got to do sometime, there's Ogmunder, who is another Draugr who is very specifically like the the nemesis of the hero. You need a, a BBEG. Yeah. Gotta have one. And she goes on to say, The portrayal of Draugr reflects the society's subliminal awareness of its own weaknesses. Desire for gold and love of special objects, bloodthirstiness, selfishness, and belief in physical strength as a trait valued for itself. So the traits given to Draugr are meant to reflect, like, the worst parts of society. They're a shadow of the kind of people who are threats to society. Look at our own dystopias, for examples, for instance. Yes, exactly. Or rather, I think that this is an extraordinarily good point to use, not only when you're reading literature, is to examine what sort of evil the author thinks the world is facing, but also for you as a DM or as a player to consider what sort of themes your game has and how you would like to portray that in your game. So what themes are are you combating? Because a lot of the time... People want to have a safe space when they game. They want to say, well, oh, I don't want to deal with, you know, X, Y, Z, for instance, racism or oppression, things like that. And it can be actually very, very empowering to include those things as themes, but let those things be what your players are fighting against. Yeah. Although, of course, don't force them on your players if your players don't want that sort of thing in their game. Absolutely not. Yeah. Check with everybody. There is a consent issue. Yes. Now, the next section is basically, why does the supernatural not work so well in the sagas? And this is less interesting. I have less stuff underlined. But the general gist of it is that the pagan traditions from which a lot of the supernatural elements come... And the Christian world in which the sagas are actually being written aren't really compatible in outlook with each other. Yeah. And so because of that clash, a lot of the power of the supernatural in literature is diminished because it's not being presented in the same context as it was originally conceived. Finally, we talk about uh, the shift in taste from saga to romance. And there were, of course supernatural sagas rather than historical sagas already like they were already around but the fact that the family sagas died out is again a question to be considered among other things uh, she suggests that it was just that the world of the historical icelander sagas was becoming less and less real to the audience as time went on because of time and cultural shifts thank you because of time and cultural shifts Because even when we have the history of the sagas, like, as they exist now, those were still post-Christian. Yes. When they were written down. So that was still far enough removed that it was several hundred years. Yes. And as they got more and more removed from both the time in which they were set and then the time in which they were written, they started to feel less real. And so we're kind of set aside in preference for romances, which were much more the thing on the continent. Mm -hmm. They're more relevant. Yeah, they're more relevant. They're what everyone else is reading. And they also fit better with the general Christian orientation of 
uh, society at that point because they are very, very, they're not just Christianized, but a lot of the romance traditions are inherently Christian mm -hmm. because large parts of the of the genre itself were developed in an already Christian world. Yeah. Pearl of Spouse is a good example. Like, it's weird and crazy, and also a fundamental part of it is about killing people who aren't Christian. Yes. But yeah, so things changed. The government of Iceland changed so that the social fabric in which these sagas are set was no longer familiar to people. And there's also the whole idea of uh, escapism into more exciting stories. Mm -hmm. And... As Dr. Hume says, the romances, whatever their faults, did offer a new way of viewing experience, one more in accord with popular Christianity. It is our misfortune that the traditional supernatural beings and creatures should have proved so inextricably bound to a materialistic idea complex the genius of the Icelandic literary mind could not create from them romances of a caliber to match that of the family sagas. Oh, that's true. That yeah, is so shame. basically, like, it's... It's understandable that they shifted to writing romances. It's just a shame that, at least in general scholarly opinion, that the romances are just not as good as the family mm -hmm. sagas. That mm -hmm. despite the brilliance of the Icelandic literary tradition, this didn't quite work for whatever reason. Yeah. Yep. Alrighty. Should I do one more? Do you think we have time? Sure, we have time for one more, I think. Cool. All right, I will let you choose between... Either city orphans and custody laws in medieval England, or he is not entitled to butter, the diet of peasants and commoners in early medieval Ireland. I'm really tempted to go with he is not entitled to butter just because I like the title, but I'm worried that the title is going to be the most interesting thing about it. It's not. Okay, then let's do that one. Okay, that's sort of why I picked it, because it's amazing, actually. So, I will go ahead and read the abstract. This article is written by Cherie and Peters. Hospitality was an important part of early medieval Irish culture, and one of the ways this was expressed was through the preparation of meals for guests. Old and Middle Irish law tracts written mainly in the 7th and 8th centuries describe types of foods to which each level of free society in early medieval Ireland was entitled during these social visits. And as can be seen from the quotation in the title page of this paper, Certain restrictions based on grade and status applied. The legal entitlements of commoners to vegetables, dairy products, breads, and on rare occasion, meats, while in another person's home, was neither the full range of foods available in early medieval Ireland, nor the totality of foods that an individual might consume in their own home or during feasts. An investigation into these law tracts, as well as old and middle Irish sagas, poetry, and other literary compositions and ecclesiastical descriptions, of penitential or hermetic diets suggests a wider range of available foods, including fruits, fish, and wild game that both peasants and commoners were likely to have. So to sum that up into a slightly more bite-sized piece of digestible information, wow, I'm going to use all the food metaphors in this one, aren't I? <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, essentially, I feel like we've come across a couple of places in texts that we've talked about where people essentially show up at a person's house and then complain that they're not getting good food. They're like, hey, this you're giving us milk instead of beer. That's one of the specific complaints in one of the sagas. Yeah, I was just thinking of exactly that one. That's Ale Saga. Mm-hmm, exactly. So in, in Ale Saga, that's a major complaint because they're like, how dare you? And the reason mm -hmm. is because they were entitled to 
different grades of food when they were guests in certain places or in any place really. So this article gets into what those are and why that is. So these law tracks, which I'm not going to try and pronounce because my Irish is not great, but these law tracks allowed guests to justly accuse their host of failing in his or her obligations if a named food to which their grade was entitled was absent. Unfortunately, these law tracks do not provide any information regarding the food entitlements of peasants as they were considered semi-free and not legally entitled to hospitality. There is some evidence to suggest, however, that the rights and responsibilities of some peasants may have been similar to those of low-ranking commoners. Thus, the foods that commoners were able to request will be used as a foundation for a wider investigation into the practices of both peasants and commoners. So the other part of this article that I found really interesting was not only like what foods were specific to what classes, but also the different types of classes that medieval, early medieval Irish society had at this time. Mm -hmm. Finbar McCormick has shown that the higher up on a cow's back the meat was, the greater status it was afforded. The king received the tenderloin and the queen a rump steak. I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. <laughs> like, it makes sense. Like, you're going to give, you know, people the best cuts of steak. Yes. I didn't know that was how you determine the best cuts of steak. Apparently it is for medieval Ireland. Grade and status can also be found in a dish entitled the Cauldron of Restitution, which we have read about before. This is the the cauldron where you stick your fork in and your portion comes out. It's your hero's yes. portion cauldron. That is actually based on this, which I find amazing. So it's not only that like the check says they get whatever their honor deserved and whatever their mm -hmm. stature deserved but what we didn't realize while reading that because i hadn't come across this article at that point was that when they placed their forks into the cauldron and pulled out whatever meal they were getting it was sufficient for their grade and their rank according to what their class was in the society so it wasn't necessarily honor based it was class based and they had a magic cauldron to determine what your food was by the way, for the listeners, if you missed that one, that's Macdatho's Pig. Yes. That's a fun one. Like yes. that one. One of our early episodes. So if you go back and listen to it, we're sorry for the audio quality. Yes, we're, we are constantly improving. <laughs> so what are the grades of commoners, you ask? Let me enlighten you. A, B, C. Yeah. <laughs> The grades of commoners can be categorized as freeland-owning, non-noble farmers... So I'm going to say that again. Free, like a free person, not a slave, land-owning, non-noble farmers of okay. various degrees of age and wealth, of which the three most well-known grades are fair midvoth, which is a man between two houses, the okera, the young freeman, and the boera, which is the cow freeman, which is similar to the churl in Anglo-Saxon laws. Cow freeman. Cow freeman, Yes. What's this about a man between two houses? That is just what he is referred to as. I'm thinking it's because he either is wealthy enough to be able to go between two houses, or he works in between two lords and therefore has his own like plot of land. Uh, okay. That is my guess. I do not know precisely. There are, let's see, eight classes of commoners. So you could be one of eight. And that's not even getting into like noble grades. And for those of you who think this is kind of weird and outrageous, totally understandable. And 
this is not at all uncommon for sort of the ancient and medieval world. Mm -hmm. Rome, for instance, had a way too complicated set of class laws and rules going from slave to, you know, patrician, so on and so forth. Like, there were so many different levels of, like, citizen versus, like, non-citizen, but you're in a Roman territory status versus, you know, you've been in Rome forever versus you're a business owner, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's highly complicated. And they had silly status rules just like these. For example, Mm -hmm. I believe that uh, patricians got to wear special shoes. Yes. So what were those called? Sumptuary laws? Yeah, sumptuary. So those have existed for a very long time. For more about any of that, listen to The Partial Historians. Yes, Very good podcast. Uh, Let's see. So here we go. These grades were especially important since a person's ability to participate in legal matters, such as a freeman's ability to make contracts with lords in the socioeconomic relationship known as clientship, differed depending on which grade of commoner you were. These clientship contracts, however, were only available to freemen, that is to say, nobles or commoners, not peasants. So if if you were in one of the eight classes of commoner, you could have a clientship relationship. But if you were below those and you were a peasant, you couldn't. Additionally, there were cultivators, but they were semi-free in the eyes of the law. And there were also serfs who were a group of peasants hereditarily bound to the soil and considered a permanent asset of a noble's property. So that is a essentially form of slave ship. Pretty much. Pretty much. Defining serfdom is extraordinarily hard, and we don't have time to go into that in this episode. Obligatory surfboard joke. (laughs) Oh, that's really bad. Oh, no. All right. Anyway, side note, A.T. Lucas, in his seminal work, Irish Food Before the Potato, asserted that from prehistoric times to the close of the 17th century, corn and milk were the mainstay of national food. Sorry, that's a that's a that's a title. That is it's the best title. Like we've got he is not entitled to butter and then Irish food before the potato. Yeah. It's like amazing titles in Irish academic literature here. But anyway, uh we're mostly going to be talking about corn that is like cereals and milk because the potato is a new world food. Yes. And if you're thinking of corn like corn on the cob, that's also a new world food. We're talking about other grains. Yes. Alrighty, so into the law tracks. Hospitality was a vital cultural institution in the early medieval Ireland for which every free law-abiding individual, regardless of rank or profession, was eligible. The nourishment of guests reinforced the social hierarchy through dietary entitlements. When guests were absent from the meal and social construct was removed, peasants and commoners had some freedom over the foods they could consume. So that means that if you were a guest in a certain place, say you were like the lowest level of commoner, you could only have certain foods. You can only demand certain foods. Mm -hmm. However, at home, if you had more than that available, say you had like a bunch of pork, then you could eat that pork. You just couldn't expect it out of your host. If you were yeah, visiting. it's not like a dietary law. Like it's not right. like you you can't eat it. It's just you can't ask for it from someone else. Exactly. So for the lowest ranked commoner, we've got milk and cheese or cereals. The substitution of cereals for milk and cheese was likely to have been a seasonal allowance during winter. The law tract also specifically denies this commoner to butter. So you can't request uh, butter because butter is a luxury. Honestly, you know, what do you need other than cheese, milk, and cereal? 
No, it's either cheese and milk or cereal. Right, depending on which is available. Right. But, like, you get cheese. Like, what What are you complaining about? That's fair. Unless you're not allowed beer. Are they allowed beer? I don't know if drink is specified. We'll have to keep looking. Because I'm just saying, like, if you're allowed beer and cheese, that's a luxury meal right there. Yeah, you're good to go. So, another level, the Okaira would have been presented with the same basic fare as the lowest rank commoner, milk and cheese, or cereals, with the same non-entitlement to butter. However, you did get certain additional side dishes, including a wooden mug of 12 inches filled with a thickened soured milk and a full-size loaf of bread or two loaves of a woman's baking. So these loaves of bread are measured roughly as 12 inches in circumferences and were as thick as a man's little finger. So you That's get like a lot of bread to eat in a sitting. They're like they're like cakes. Oh, that way. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking like the length of a little finger, not the width of a little finger. I don't know. Well, it doesn't specify, but quite honestly, I'm impressed that they specified this much. Like they're giving you measurements of how much how big these pieces of bread are. Also, apologies to the people listening for that period where we were gesturing at each other rather than <laughs> using words. Yes, that's fair. Yeah, I don't know whether it was like a long ways pinky versus like a tall ways pinky, but... Yes, the, the, these are the gestures we were making. Yes, it's still a substantial amount of bread. Now, the yeah, meal for the highest grade of commoners includes meat, likely sourced from domestic livestock. So that includes milk and cereals side dishes, and salted meat. Because fresh meat is very, very hard to keep fresh in this period. So if you have you know visitors dropping in, then you're like, oh, yes, get out the beef jerky. Yeah, like you can just have salted meat around. But if you're required to provide fresh meat, that's basically requiring you to go slaughter some livestock. Yes, exactly. These individuals were allowed to have butter with their side dishes, as well as salted meat on the 3rd, 5th, 9th, and 10th days and on Sunday. Third, fifth, ninth, and tenth days of what? I don't know. I don't have the rest of that quoted. I do have the Irish. Oh, well, translate it for us. <laughs> My old <laughs> Irish is not good. I couldn't get over the, the fricatives and the labials and the... Uh. <laughs> Sorry, just a look on your face. I can't read old Irish. I tried that class. I tried auditing it. I didn't want to get graded. Anyway, in these lists of potential meals, the luxury status of certain items is clear. Salt was a condiment to which only the grades of the high commoners were entitled, and salted meat, specifically domesticated livestock, was reserved only for the highest grades of commoners, suggesting that fresh meat was indeed a luxury consumed mainly by nobility. A commoner who had acquired enough wealth to start lending to other commoners could become known as what was a commoner lord, and was described as a lord who is only entitled to butter and seed corn and live cattle as renders from his clients, distinguishing him from noble lords who were entitled also to ale and and various forms of salted and fresh meat. Now, mm -hmm. for that, I'm inferring here that this is as tribute as he has other commoners under him, giving him tribute, not for specific meat. Right. Presumably whoever he's been loaning to. Yes, precisely. Certain restrictions on luxury high-status items could occasionally be waived during periods of institutionalized caretaking, such as sick maintenance, a process which involved the care and treatment of a wounded individual by the attacker. It seems like the last person I'd want caring for me. Yes. 
absolutely. But again, like, this brings up this weird idea that we see occasionally in sagas or in, like, for instance, Perla's vows, like, Percival shows up and then Lance's Lance a lot, and then they both sit in their little sick beds together mm. and take care of each other. So there is something to this idea of like, oh, if you've been injured, then you get to have the nutritious elements that you would not otherwise get. So butter is included in that set of foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly, for pregnant women as well. Well, of course. A woman on sick maintenance was entitled to half the food of which her husband was entitled. A concubine could only claim one third or one quarter of his food, which I had not really read about Irish concubines. Apparently. So (laughs) I wanted to include that because that was very interesting. Uh, Let's see. According to... The prose rule of the Chely Day requires nuns who were menstruating to be given brochan, which is a dish often reserved for invalids made by heating milk with oatmeal and herbs. That actually sounds quite good. Yeah. And any law-abiding freeman was entitled to collect herbs for this occasion, even if the herbs grew on private property. Mm. So you could go take your neighbor's herbs and go like, it's for a menstruating nun, and he'd have to be like, oh, it's okay then. Yes, precisely. Which is very, very interesting that the law was that well developed and that specified Mm -hmm. for those situations. Yes, okay, so you know how pregnant women can get very specific cravings? I have heard this. That is accounted for in Irish law. Really? Yes. There is a 9th century saint's life which documents one pregnant woman's quest for chives, while another legal tract shows that the smell of malt could trigger a pregnant woman's desire for ale. In the latter case, a person was exempted from any liabilities incurred during the pursuit of ale for a pregnant woman. That's amazing. Any liabilities. So, like, you you get a free pass as long as you're doing it to get a pregnant woman ale? Yes. And notably, there is another 8th century law tract which says that there are there's a very specific code here that says a man can be fined for withholding these longed-for foods from a pregnant woman. That's pretty cool. So, like, if you piss off your pregnant wife and she really, really, really wants pickles and nachos, you'd better get her the pickles and nachos because she yeah, can she fine can you. Sue you. Yeah. One author has suggested that the reasons lawyers may have justified this fine was because a husband or partner might have withheld food in an attempt to cause the miscarriage of an unwanted child, which is the sort of downside to that provision. But it does show that women, pregnant women, had legal protections. Yeah. Although it's probably not the best idea that one of those legal protections is giving them alcohol. Yes. I also don't know particularly how strong medieval ale was. Not very. Right. Because... I have heard it said time and time again that a pregnant woman can have half a pint of Guinness and be okay. But then again, I was in Ireland and they love their Guinness. So I was going to say, whom have you heard this from? The Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Please consult your doctor and probably don't consume any alcohol while you're pregnant. Although I have heard Guinness is actually very nutritious. It's incredibly nutritious and it's also, like, it looks like a very dark beer, but it's... It's a very light beer, so you can drink quite a lot of it without getting drunk. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there is a lot of evidence for what children can eat 
according to the law, particularly for fosterage. So we've already talked about how important fosterage was in medieval Ireland, so I won't go into that as much. If you're interested, please check out our Kukulin and Toynbakuling episodes, because uh, we get into a lot about fosterage there. So generally, for kiddos at this time... Yes, they are allowed a juice box, Cheerios, <laughs> small plastic toys, and the occasional penny. And fruit snacks. Don't forget the fruit snacks. I would like to defend Past Mac for forgetting the fruit snacks because, of course, only children who could lend money to other children were entitled to fruit snacks. Uh, yes, so the medieval Irish Happy Meal was the yolk of eggs, butter, curds, and porridge. And porridge is given to all of them, but the flavoring in which, like, that goes into it differs depending on their status and depending on their class. So children of commoners got porridge made with buttermilk or water, and children of nobles were entitled to have fresh butter added to their dishes, and children of kings were allowed honey. Porridge made with champagne! <laughs> And it tastes terrible, but it's a class signifier. Ugh. You know, that's like when people put gold on their food and they're like, I'm eating a golden burger. Like, why? I hate that that's a thing. It's so weird. What is consistent is that according to jurists, foods appropriate to commoners were not the same as those appropriate to nobles and kings, and certain items were considered luxuries. Yet, and our author is reiterating this again, a range of information from legal, literary, and ecclesiastical and archaeological sources indicates that different grades of commoners, their wives, and their children were not limited to these items within their own homes, during feasts, or even under certain legal constraints. Then we get into a couple specific types of crops. Goat's milk was valued more highly than sheep's milk, even though sheep were valued more highly as livestock in terms Maybe of price. Maybe goats give less milk? That is actually what the argument is. Oh, there we go. So there you go. Also, you can buy goat cheese. Have you ever seen sheep cheese? Maybe sheep cheese isn't that good. I might be a cheese snob, but I have seen sheep cheese. Have you? Yes. Is it good? Yeah. Is it that weird? I've never seen sheep cheese, but oh. then again, I, I don't go to, like, fancy groceries. That's fair. Yeah. Again, maybe this is my own bias because I lived in Ireland, but yeah, there, yes, sheep's cheese. Oh, all right. <laughs> I've got to put that on my list then. It's I enjoyed it. Was it you who told me that there's such a, that you've had moose cheese or am I thinking of something else? I don't want to know what that would taste like. That seems very moose strange. Too. I don't think I told you that. Maybe I just read somewhere that it was a thing and I associated with it with you because moose in Alaska. In Alaska. No, I get that. That's entirely valid. I have never once in my life heard of that. Hmm. Okay, Googling it quickly tells me that it is a, pro it is a product solely of one place in Sweden, so. <laughs> that answers that question. I would love for a Swedish listener to send us moose cheese. Apparently it's very expensive because it's only made in the one place. I would imagine so. I might put that on my bucket list now. Who knows? <laughs> anyway. Moose cheese. Moving forward, fruits and vegetables. Let's see. On establishing right and entitlement, every free person in good legal standing in a tuath has the right to wild garlic, even though an accompanying gloss restricted this right to garlic found on common land. So it sort of depended on where you were. Mm -hmm. But you could gather, you could freely gather depending on like what your local county decided. Right. 
And remember, kids, common land used to be a thing. That used to just exist. That's a wild concept. I know. Absolutely wild. Yeah, foraging was very popular. I mean, it was also associated with being poor because you couldn't buy your groceries mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages. But yeah, there was there was land for you to just gather stuff on, including wild radish, carrots, and cabbage. When sick, any law-abiding free person in early medieval Ireland was entitled to garden herbs. For it is for this purpose that gardens have been made. So like, if you're sick, Fair. you can go and get the herbs you need to get better. Because that's what gardens are for. Because that's what gardens are for. The wild apple tree is often listed in various sources and there are specific law tracks saying that if it's on the edge of a person's property for instance mm -hmm. any apples that fall on your property you can collect for four years and then the fifth year the owner of the tree on whose land it belongs to can gather all of it and then the cycle restarts interesting so that's that's like a cool balance i like that yeah I imagine that's an important reason to build a fence, so you can be sure of which side they're no, falling on. No, precisely. No argument. Look, it's on this side of the fence. That's why there's a fence. That's why there's a fence. There's also wild blackberries that are directly associated with commoners in Ireland, which I thought was interesting, because I never hear about berries in, like, fantasy books. I thought that was a standard of when you're, like, foraging in the wild. I mean, yeah, I guess, but I've never, like... Maybe I need to read more widely, but I feel like that they're not often included. Like, when in D&D &D do you ever go to the market and you're like, yeah, there's a fruit vendor selling wild blackberries that he foraged? That's true. I don't I know. I just think that would like be like when you make a survival check, like one of the standards would be you find some berries. Yeah, there you go. I can I can see that. I don't know. I just That's think if you roll high or if you roll low. <laughs> You'll never know. I just think there needs to be more fruit vendors in ye old fantasy towns. Mm -hmm. Fishing was also a matter of like common property, or if it was on private property, you could rent out like fishing the weirs. Fish? Well, fishing weirs essentially like spots to fish, uh, which we do in Alaska. You can get your fishing license, and every every head in a household can get twenty five salmon, either per season or per run. I don't remember, but. For those of you not familiar with salmon runs in Alaska, salmon are really big. I don't know what you would do with 25 salmon. Like, that'll feed you for a good long time. You just gotta freeze it all. But anyway, you can do that in medieval Ireland. There are fish such as salmon, sea trout, flatfish, uh, such as flounder and plaice, mackerel, cod, gray mullet, skate, and conger eels, lampreys, and shad. There's also shellfish, so we have a lot of archaeological remains of the brooches and other small pieces of like people were here in caves with a bunch of shellfish mm -hmm. if a neighbor needed water for his mill and had to go across his neighbor's land to reach a lake river or pond the law afforded the legal right to build on neighbor b's property as long as the first person either paid a fee or offered usage of the mill which is what i was sort of talking about earlier these are sensible laws yes very much so Especially the part where you have diplomatic immunity as long as you're getting ill <laughs> for a pregnant woman. I feel like we need those laws reinstated. <laughs> Finally, some birds were also consumed, such as geese, blackbirds, and some seabirds. But 
depending on what the type of bird was, it really depended on whether you were a commoner versus a noble. Like, a noble's going to consume a goose, but a commoner is going to consume, like, a shearwater, for instance, or a blackbird, okay. which is where we get, like, the, what is it, like, 20-something blackbirds baked into a pie? Yeah. So that's where that comes from. If a bird was caught on land owned by a commoner, he was entitled to one-fifth of the flesh and two-fifths of the feathers, which isn't that much meat to share if it's a small bird. No, but it's still good law. It's still good law. Chickens were kept firstly for their eggs and secondly for their flesh. Hens could be one of the loans a lord could give to his client to cement a clientship contract, which describes the reciprocal render as a 12-inch mug full of eggs. So you would deliver. That's the worst possible way to measure eggs. I agree with this, but that's the law. Like, there's going to be a lot of unused space in that mug. Yes, but here's the thing. There was actually a fight about this in a banquet saga, and there was a war over this because a hen's egg is only four inches in circumference and five inches along the vertical axis, while the dimension of a goose egg was much, much larger. So they were fight like they were delivered one egg versus the other, and mm. there was a massive fight over it. Like, you, you could just say, I want. 12 eggs. Like, there's yes. a reason we don't buy eggs by volume. Yes. But no, you get like, I know some eggs are inches. bigger than others, <laughs> but, like... You get 12 inches. Come on. Notably, for all the talk about, like, the cows in Ireland, they don't eat a lot of beef. That's safe for very special occasions. Oh, we had wild animals, including badgers, deer, and wild boar. And pine marten, which were all animals that I, like... Pigs, sure, deer, yes, but like badgers and pine marten, I hadn't considered. Yeah, I have to assume there's a reason that we don't eat them anymore. You would think, but also like duck is not super common in the States. Is it not? Not really. Like if you're trying to find duck at your local grocery store, you're going to have a hard time. Oh. But like quail eggs and duck eggs you can find in the grocery store in Ireland. You can buy quail eggs at certain gas stations in the South. That's wild. I didn't know that. I worked at a gas station on the graveyard shift for a year down in Mississippi, and one of the things we sold were jars of pickled quail eggs. Oh my gosh. Pickled quail eggs make sense. You can go to only like any grocery store in Ireland and find fresh quail eggs. It was amazing. But anyway, yes, so in conclusion, there were a lot of different things that the medieval Irish could eat, and there were also laws for what they could demand and what they could demand was not only what they could eat in their own household. And there you go. That is, he is not entitled to butter. Irish food law. Yes, and I feel like the most important takeaway of who's entitled to what is that everyone deserves cheese. Everyone does deserve cheese. It's a staple. So, shall we go through our segments here? Yeah, I feel like most of them aren't going to apply. True. But that's okay, because we've already been going for a while. Okay, so we've got we've got trolls, draugr, giants, giants, dragons, dragons. Yeah, so don't don't forget those. Don't yeah. forget those. Draugr are apparently especially good for symbolic purposes, so make sure to include them in your game and backstory. They come with and a backstory. pre-prepared backstory. Yes. There we go. Speaking of D and D games. What do we want to use from these articles in D&D &D games? Aside from an overabundance of food, and I should argue 
fruit vendors in your local town square? I've got a list of thoughts on the article that I did, but if, since you did two of them, maybe you want to go first <laughs> and we can... Okay, let's see. Let's go back to this first one. So early modern magic and witchcraft. I feel like here it's... I was mostly engaged by this article in how it dealt with some of the underlying assumptions about medicine and magic for its day and age. In applying it to a D&D game, I would be pretty careful about how you want to deal with like menstruation or impotence or whatever. But you could use some of these ideas for like, how do you determine whether somebody is possessed by a demon? Yes. Maybe a local physician needs some help in getting an item that helps them determine that. Or maybe a guy is like, I think he's boy a witch for either impotence or other X factor. And it is now up to your party to find either a physician or cleric or witch to try and lift the curse or determine whether it is a curse at all or just a medical problem. Yes, I, I like the idea of having a, a little medical drama where the answer can be demons. <laughs> That's so fun. I also think it would be an interesting theme to bring into your game. What does your elite class look like? What do your academics look like? Are your academics the upper crust? Are your physicians the upper crust? Is there a big division between, for instance, your witches and your doctors? Are they maybe the same? Because, you know, your TTRPG world can be whatever you want it to be. So maybe witches are in the lauded class with lawyers at Al. Maybe they're not. How do you want to play that? How do you want that to pan out? I think that's a really interesting way to sort of flip expectations, subvert expectations, and sort of play with those. Can you get a doctorate in witchcraft? Ooh, that would be pretty dope. I feel like yeah. you, like, insofar as you can become a sorcerer and a wizard, I feel like that needs to be a thing. But also, you know, maybe wizards are looked down on for their studies because it's not as good of a job as being a physician or vice versa or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the, what are the prestige battles in your world. Yeah, maybe wizards are looked on as like the scholarship kids. Like they're not they're not born into it like us. That's an amazing idea. So what are the warlocks? Sugar babies. <laughs> always. Always. All right. Again, depends on how you want to play it. I think it could be really hysterical to have a witch trial in your D&D game. Yes. Especially if magic is well known. Yeah, you'd have to make it pretty different to, like... See, here's the way that I get around that, right. is not all magic is created equal in the eyes of different societies. So maybe clerical magic is allowed in one space, and sorcery is allowed in another. But if you have anything to do with being a warlock, that's not allowed. Or vice versa, maybe if you're born into magic, then you're considered unnatural because you have to learn it, and it's cheating to just be born <laughs> into it. So my solution to that problem or to the to the idea that all magic is freely available and all over the place, and if you're having a really high magic campaign, my answer to that is not all magic is equal in your society. Play with the politics of that. I like to run politic-heavy campaigns, but that's just my take. You can do it in whatever way you want. That's my solution. Oh, maybe somebody is feigning being a wizard or feigning being a warlock. Yes. And then you've got to have a trial 
or some way to determine what that looks like. Maybe you as a player are feigning being a warlock. I feel like that would be difficult to fake. There was a great D&D idea I saw where you play a rogue, but you present as a wizard. I think I heard about this. And so like you carry a staff, you do the whole like presenting as a wizard thing, but you carry like flashbangs and smoke bombs and you know, maybe you multi-class into a level of wizard or something later down the line, but all of your stuff is just sleight of hand. And you're like, oh, shot like a boom. I'm going to disappear. And you throw a smoke bomb and stealth. Yeah. Magic missile. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> I, I summon knife. <laughs> but anyway, play, you know, play with that. How would, like, what would a, what would a false magician look like in your, in your world? Let's see. That's probably what I got for, for this one. I have some thoughts on the one I, I did because this, this is what I did write down because the, I knew we were going to be talking about it. Uh, the idea that fighting monsters gives you social capital reminded me of like the old timey D&D thing of, uh, all right, so I don't know if you're like aware of this because it's less of a thing now, but it used to be the assumption that after your players had leveled up a bit, you'd move from this like individual hero level play to like a domain level play mm -hmm. where... Yeah, okay, you are familiar. Yes, familiar with it. For the listeners, then, what that means is basically that your character would have control over, like, some land or a keep or mm -hmm. some some kind of domain. And the focus of the game turns from less into, like, now we murder hobo and fight bigger monsters to now we have to, like... Manage your enterprise. Yeah, you have to manage this this place and defend it and deal with internal politics. I feel like reintegrating that would be one way to make fighting monsters result in social capital. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Especially if you like have to clear the area that you then have a domain over. That's an easy way to give your players, you know, a keep or whatever. But yeah. also having to maintain that and like, you know, maybe one of your, you know, hirelings comes in and says like, uh, hey boss, we've got a bunch of trolls that came into the north. Can you take care of those? Because you haven't hired anyone else to take care of them. Or, you know, take take it straight out of Glamour and Grettir Saga and mm. hire somebody to take care of them. But maybe they didn't hire a high, a high enough level person. And now, yep. now they have to take care of that guy because he turned into a dragon. They, they hired that rogue who's dressing as a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it, not him. He can't do anything right. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's good. Uh, I also like the idea from Airbig Yasaga of having legal procedures against monsters. Ooh, always. That's one of my favorites. Like, imagine if you could figure out a way to sue the dragon instead of slaying it. Ooh, uh, regarding the last idea about domains and keeps, did you ever read, a, it was maybe like a Tumblr post or something about the... Um, there is a maximum amount of wealth you can accrue before you attract a dragon or you attract having a horde. Like if I you, don't think that, if you, that I saw this, no. Oh, it's great. If you don't maintain your holding and you let it go to ruin or if you keep hoarding wealth, then at some point 
you will attract ghouls, you will attract a ghost, you will attract a dragon or some sort of monster. And so the the premise or the idea behind this was like, maybe instead of stealing from your enemies, you just slowly add more wealth until they hit that number and then have to deal with the dragon. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, just throwing that one out there. But yeah, like if you don't maintain, you know, for instance, your domain, if your players don't maintain their domain, then what decides to lurk in it? Yeah. Man, now I kind of want to run a campaign that's just like you've inherited this old falling down keep. You have to make the you have to make it and the land that controls functional and profitable <laughs> again. Go. Go or else. Yeah. All right, what else? I like the idea of heroes who are good at fighting monsters, but bad at everyday life, like Gretir. Like, this is one of the things that the article talked about a lot, was the idea that Gretir is a really good monster fighter, but he's a really bad, like, person by society's standards. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just not good at being part of society. And I feel like that's just a solid character uh, archetype. Absolutely. 100%. And you don't... For for the record here, I feel like characters historically, people have historically leaned into creating characters like that who are barbarians or who are orcs or who are, you know, those big, beefy, brawny types of characters. You don't have to do it that way either. You can play a character like a, a, I don't know, maybe a battle wizard who's been in a couple skirmishes and just doesn't know how not to go off with magic all the time. Yeah, that's actually a good concept. (laughs) Throwing it out there. Cursed dragon hordes. The hordes of dragons are cursed. Always, Always. solid. Always. You Literally can never gold. go wrong. <laughs> Amazing. All right. And uh, we talked about this a bit, but monsters need history mm-hmm. and monsters need kin. Yeah. Like, so when you're getting involved in fighting monsters, like, it's not just going to be, it shouldn't be just like random monster encounter and then nothing ever comes of it. But there should be a background to why that monster's there, and maybe there are consequences to dealing with it. Grendel had a mom. Yeah, exactly. Beowulf has to fight Grendel's mom. It's a it's a whole thing. Like, that's the majority of the poem. Yeah, really. All right, and that was my list for that article. Alrighty. I think the idea of guests being entitled to certain things is really, really cool. Especially like guests being entitled to a certain level of hospitality. You can incorporate that as your levels, or sorry, as your players level up in a game, for instance. You can set that outright in your setting. Like, hey, by the way, as you guys have certain ranks, you guys are entitled to be hosted in different places. It doesn't have to be food. It could also be like, yeah, once you have a certain rank then you're invited to these places or these stores become available to you or whatever. Mm -hmm. And rather than that just being like, no, you can't find that magic item or like, no, the shop just doesn't have it. It's more along the lines of like, yeah, you don't have the insignia or you don't have the king's seal or whatever to actually physically go into that section of the town or into that store specifically. Like you just, you don't have that status yet. Go get it. And that doesn't have to be, you know, murder hoboing your way. It could be political. It could be social. Whatever you want it to be. Yeah, that's definitely something that could be probably more easily worked into a video game than a tabletop game. Because a video game can just say no. But I feel like if you did that in a tabletop game, they'd just be like, all right, how do we sneak in? Let's sneak in. Well, that's an option, too. Maybe your maybe your honor status goes down until you're kicked out of the town. Who knows? Depends on your players. 
Uh, let's see. Anything else? I would say don't be afraid of incorporating a bunch of these other sort of out there food ideas and, you know, blackberries or wild boar or wild martin. Yeah, serve badger. Yeah, why not? Different levels of commoner. I'd say be careful with that. But I always find that a world feels very lived in when you get to understand what the sort of socioeconomic plight of the people is. So Mm -hmm. if you have that set up, your players don't even need to know about it unless they want to, unless they ask. But if you have that sort of set up in your head, and it doesn't need to be a caste system, it doesn't need to be leveled out, you know, you don't need eight levels of social classes, and you don't need to have food laws for each of them. But if you have that in your head, and you have that figured out, then you'll be able to have characters uh, and NPCs speak off the cuff, and you'll have something to draw from. Like, one of my favorites is... In ancient Rome, they had stamps on bread so that you knew where the bread came from. So if you got a bad loaf, you could take it to the authority and be like, hey, I bought this from this guy and from this specific store. They're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll go investigate. So like, use stuff like that. That sort of structure is useful if you're, say, plotting out a village that you're expecting the players to spend a lot of time in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, again, you don't have to tell the players... it, you don't have to like break down the system for them, but if you have a system, that'll help you build something that feels more realistic. Mm-hmm. It's the underwater part of the iceberg. Yeah, exactly. All that big stuff that you work on that they don't necessarily see. I don't know. Having butter be a luxury. Yeah, no butter for you. <laughs> Never let your players have butter. Just make a point of it. <laughs> yes. Like one specific tavern. Oh man. Anyway, um, there was a there was another idea. Yes. In the Middle Ages, almond milk was actually far more common than dairy, cow, sheep, goat milk. And milk itself was a luxury. So if you wanted to, you could just include that for flavor. Yeah, that's definitely a a Tiffany effect, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you want to explain that for our our listeners? Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry. Sorry. A Tiffany effect is, uh, or the Tiffany effect is when something seems anachronistic while it's not. And it's named after the name Tiffany, because Tiffany sounds like a very modern name, but it's actually a very old one. I think it's short for, it was originally short for Theophania. Mm-hmm. And putting almond milk into a campaign would feel very weird and modern and anachronistic, even if it is accurate to the medieval times. Exactly. Which is why I think you should put it in. But, yes. you know, maybe that's just my medieval brain being like, <laughs> I'm going to be pedantic. I'm going to teach my players something about the Middle Ages. <laughs> oh. Yes, I think that's about what I've got. Oh, oh, okay. You could you could have, depending on how you want to play this in your campaign, legal disputes over like who's allowed to use whose fishing you know, section or what yeah, are the sure. areas you have to do about that. Or again, like forests and woods were different things. Forests were wild and woods were property of the king. You know, and that could be a major thing. Like, oh, there's a manticore in the forest that the peasants are upset about, but the king won't do anything about it because it's not in his woods. Right. How do you deal with that? It's a good way to produce more complicated encounters Mm -hmm. and more complicated problems and social situations for your players to work through is by going into the the legal background things. Yeah, it's definitely deeper, deeper world building. I think that's what I've got for this one. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Modern culture. I mean, we don't really have food laws, but I guess hospitality sort of carries through. I don't know. 
Yeah. I think different like different styles of food and there are different classes of produce. Like, oh, do you buy generic brand or do you buy name brand grocery? That is true. There's definitely a uh, uh classes of food still mm-hmm. and they, it definitely means a lot as to what kind of food you're eating yeah like can you afford fresh food or you do you buy frozen veggies can you afford moose cheese <laughs> that is the question some of that sticks around which is unfortunate yeah i mean we've got the hero's journey we've got all of that we've got monsters as social metaphors yeah yeah that's definitely still a thing mm-hmm uh, we still have issues of determining whether or not whether something's uh, psychosomatic or mm-hmm. whether it's a, mm-hmm. a real mental illness or whether it's a physical illness that's manifesting mentally or definitely, definitely. And depending on where you are in the world, still determining whether something is witchcraft versus a physical malady. Yeah. For example, if you're in Toronto, then witches are real there. So I hear. I have no idea what you're referencing, and that makes it. I'm not referencing anything. I picked a random location. Oh, okay. I was like, what's going on in Toronto that I haven't read Witches. in the news? Fair enough. <laughs> Witchcraft is real in Toronto, and only in Toronto. Only in Toronto. Anyway. Is there a D&D party to assemble here? I do not think so. A physician, a witch... A warrior and a commoner? That would be a party, sure. I don't know if it's a very good one, but no. do as you <laughs> will. Yeah, sure. All right. The Tolkien tally. Tolkien references creating one good dragon as opposed to a whole bunch of dragons without meaning, which I think is a great thing to carry forward into your own storytelling. Yes. Yes, he was responding to something, actually, so I can expand on that a bit. Apparently, there was another scholar, R.W. Chambers, who was angry at the Beowulf poet for writing the story about the dragon instead of writing about the destruction of Herat and Ingeld and all of that stuff. And he was like, why couldn't you include this instead of this dumb dragon? That that tale should not have been exchanged for a whole wilderness of dragons, let alone one. And J.R.R. Tolkien's like, one good dragon. Is way better. Yeah. Ugh. And obviously, in, in Tolkien's opinion, the Beowulf dragon is a good dragon. I love academic snark. It's my favorite kind. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. Oh man, we have so much food. So much food. There is so much food. Let me see if I can go through and list some of the food that we have. We have blackberries, pine martens, badgers, wild boar, sheep, goats, milk. Almond milk. Porridge. We've also got butter, of course. Can't forget the butter. Which you can't have. Uh, Legumes. They had peas and beans. Let's see. Cereals. Veggies. Garden herbs, if you're ill. Ale. Which you can definitely have if you're pregnant. Ugh, please don't. Where is my list of fish? There was a big list of fish. Ooh, I remember it included shad and lampreys, which are cool. Lampreys yes. should always be mentioned. Conger, Conger eels. eels also super cool. Gray mullet, cod, mackerel, flounder, sea trout, and salmon. Yeah, apples. There's quite a lot of foods in the And cheese, world. which everyone is entitled to. Everyone is entitled to cheese. All right, there's our kitchen table. That's quite a feast. Yes. 
it's not. Get your wife the damn food that she wants when she's pregnant. Yes, or she'll sue you. She'll sue you. Don't risk it. Know the law, I guess. Like, make sure that you have what you need to be a good host, as required mm-hmm. by the law. Provide cheese for your players, but not butter. Not butter. Probably don't pretend to be possessed. Yes, that doesn't seem to work. It's not a good gig. The better scam is pretending you can do miracles. (laughs) Which is ethically wrong, but financially successful. That's very fair, yes. There are a lot of things that fall into that category. Yeah. All right. A messenger. Correspondence from a while ago, even longer ago by the time you're listening to this, because we were recording like two months in advance right now. Mm-hmm. Patrick says that he does have information about Anglo-Saxon swords, which was something we were wondering about in a previous episode, how flexible oh, yes. they were. And he says there seem to have been two types of material used. Most common was welded blades, where a small amount of good steel was welded to an iron core. Mm-hmm. These swords would bend instead of snapping, but they wouldn't bend back. Oh, no. And you had to get a smith to hammer them back into shape. I mean, you could still use it. And he says uh, high-status blades were often welded into beautiful patterns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Similar to modern katanas. Very nice. Gotta love that Damascus steel. Yeah. And secondarily... The other kind, uh, a few finds appear to have been made of crucible steel imported from India or the Near East that would have similar properties to late medieval or Renaissance steel, so they'd be flexible. Very nice. But those wouldn't be uh, locally made. Yes, that makes sense. Very nice. I always love learning more about swords and sword lore in general, so send in everything you know about medieval weapons. I am 100% here for it. Indeed. Alrighty. Well, I think that concludes this week's episode. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a bit of a long one, but, the... but... That's good. I didn't know we could take two academic articles and turn that into a whole episode. I had tons of fun doing this one. Well, we'll find out if, if we should do this more or not. I think we should do it more, but listeners, please let us know whether you enjoyed it, because I have more. And if, if it helps, we can be more streamlined about this instead of going into detail. It depends on what you guys want, because we listen to your responses. Yes. Please give us feedback on what you want. We will listen. Yes. We're both academics. We love getting graded. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Alrighty. I guess that concludes that. Yeah, that's a good point to end on. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky-related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. The vernacular 9th century hagiographical text. I can't do the terms. You can just say Saint's Life. Yes.